the prophet Isaiah has repeatedly spoken out against the people's idolatry based upon the uselessness of their idols. Their idols are unable to explain the meaning of the past nor tell the future. And these idols are unable to save them from the impending judgment that is to come. And Isaiah has prophesied in Isaiah 43, that 43rd chapter, telling them, even though the people are weary of worship and they're not interested, as chapter 43, verse 22 says, God says, I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm not going to remember them any longer. And I'm going to pour out my spirit blessing the people. And so now Isaiah takes this time to begin to try to develop the heart that is necessary for a people who will receive the forgiveness of sins and receive the blessings that are going to be poured out from God. And the issue that Isaiah then takes up again is the problem of idolatry. But here in the 44th chapter, he spends his longest amount of time where he's going to use quite a bit of humor to try to drive into his audience's mind and I think as well our mind of why idolatry is foolish, why it is such a waste and why we need to make sure that we do not fall into the same trap. I think unfortunately for us, we have a difficulty when we read about teachings on idolatry uh, because we read it and go, well, I don't have an idolatry problem. There's no statue in my closet. You know, there's no graven images laying around the house. And so we come to an idolatry text and go, well, no big deal. That's not me and kind of pass it off. And we're going to look at the definition that Isaiah gives of idolatry tonight. And I think it will become eye-opening as to what God means by idolatry and then how we can avoid it and tear our idols out. You begin with me in Isaiah 44, the 44th chapter, it's page 604 in the Pew Bible in front of you, Isaiah 44. And let's start with verses 6 through 8 as God now makes a declaration about himself. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid, have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God's first argument against idolatry is he starts this off. Very simple. I'm unique. There's nobody like me is what God says. And you'll notice really verse 6, he he begins all of that and all of the descriptions that he gives. Uh, This is what the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of armies. This is who I am. I am the Redeemer. I'm the King. I'm the Lord of the armies. I'm the one in charge. There is no one like me. And he says, I am the first and I am the last. And what God is saying is not only is he eternal, which nothing else is. Everything else is temporal. God is saying, I am the first and the last. I am eternal in all ways. But this would help in understanding that you can put your trust in God 
because he's not going anywhere. He's always been there. He will always be there. There's no reason to think that you can't depend upon him. That's what makes him different from anybody else or anything else. Trusting in anything else or anyone else is eventually going to disappear. But there is the God who is the first and the last, the eternal God. And therefore, he knows your past problems. He knows your difficulties. He knows what you're going through and he's there to help. Consider the context of Isaiah where Isaiah has prophesied you are going to go off into Babylonian slavery. But don't trust in anything else. Don't trust in their gods. Don't trust in other nations. And don't trust in yourself. You trust in me. I am the eternal God. I know what you are going through. And I am the only one that can save. And so the uniqueness of God is presented. That's why he says at the end of verse 6, there's nobody else. I'm the only one. There's no one besides me. I'm the one who is able to do this. And no one can do what I can do. You have to love verse 7. Is somebody like me? Then let him declare and set it before me. Tell me what is to come. Tell me what is to happen in the end of verse 7. Only God can do that. Is somebody else going to explain the future and give understanding to the events that are about to unfold? And this is a great setup because what Isaiah is going to do is he is going to give in the next couple of chapters some amazing predictions about world events. He is going to name conquerors and kingdoms. And God is setting that up right here and saying, now let's see who else can do that. Who else can describe what the future will hold? Who else can tell you exactly how it's all going to fall out? So God says he is unique. I love verse 8. There is no rock. And I believe that really sets up the picture of what this chapter is about. You cannot depend on anyone or anything. There is no rock. God is the only place to turn. Nobody else deserves that dependency but God alone. And so he stands up and says, there's no rock. All the things that we think we can depend upon, we shouldn't do it. God is the rock and there is no other. That sets up now for what he's going to do from verse 9 to verse 20. As now he describes really what I think would be safe to say the absurdity of idolatry. Listen to the satire of Isaiah. Isaiah 44 verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit... Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The iron smith takes a cutting tool. And works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. 
He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He wrote, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat, and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Isaiah now just simply mocks idolatry and lays it out with point after point. Begin in in verse 9 because I want you to notice the, the picture of idolatry. He points out by saying, what a waste. This is a meaningless pursuit, a waste of time. And then says, the things that they delight in do not profit. And I submit to you that is the definition of idolatry. That in which we put our greatest treasure, our greatest delight, that is the picture of idolatry. The NIV and the Holman Christian Standard read, the things that they treasure. This is the warning that he's given. He's looking at them and saying, you put your delight in these things, and the irony is you are valuing things that have no value. Notice how he words it there when he says, you value and they have no profit. You value the valueless. You treasure the treasureless. There's no value to these things. And you think that they are so important. And that's what verse 9 and verse 10 then get at. Only a fool would fashion a God that has no value and cannot help. Why would you spend your time delighting and treasuring things that you cannot depend on, that will not help you, that cannot save you, that offers no deliverance in your time of need? And then you'll notice how he really launches off of that with all of these kind of various stabs, these various jabs that he gives about idolatry. For example, notice verse 12, as he uses the image of the ironsmith, and he says, here is the ironsmith, and he has got his cutting tool, and he's fashioning his idol over the coals, and he's hammering it and working it over, and what is happening to the idolater as he expends all of this effort in creating this God and fashioning this God and delighting in this God? He gets hungry and thirsty and faint. And here's what Isaiah saying, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If that's really a God, if those things really helped, why isn't it helping you? 
Why are you becoming faint while you're working on this supposed God? If this is supposed to be your help, your deliverance and your strength, then why doesn't your false God, your idol, then come to your rescue and help? And the contrast that Isaiah wants us to get at, such a picture that he contrasts, God is the giver of strength to the weak. He has pictured that from Isaiah 40, and he will continue to picture it on through the rest of this this, uh, message to the end of chapter 66. God is the one who gives strength to the weak, but the idolater is weakened from the idol. God says, I will raise you up. I will strengthen you. I will give you the help. That's what chapter 43 was describing. I will give you what you need and I will deliver you. And yet when you turn to idols, rather than finding deliverance, you find yourself weakened. To put it this way into our minds, idolatry then becomes a waste of time. It is a waste of our strength. It is a waste of our efforts. And it ultimately leads us worse off than we were at the very beginning of the pursuit. So many times that's exactly what happens is we pursue the things of this world thinking this will give me my delight. This will give me my satisfaction. This will be my joy. And at the end of the pursuit, we're worse off than we were. We pursue sins of sexual morality. We pursue pursue sins of gathering more wealth, depending upon more and more things in this life. Pursuing more power and success. These things come to crush us rather than help us. And that's the image and the point of verse 12. Is here is this idolater and fashions his God. And what is happening as he does all of this work and puts all of this time into this idol? He himself is being weakened. He himself is becoming hungry and thirsty and the idol isn't satisfying him. The idol is not giving what he thought it would give him. Verse 13, he shifts the image a little bit but and moves the point a little bit further. Here is the idolater, verse 13. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of what? A man. With the beauty of what? A man. The idolater shapes his God after what he knows and what he sees. And what Isaiah is getting at is, you know what idolatry really is all about? Is idolatry reflects all of our weaknesses and it reflects all of our limitations. If these things were truly God's and if these things were truly great, They would be beyond us, but idols show our limited knowledge and show our limited glory. They simply reflect the feeble knowledge of humanity. They simply reflect the limited glory of man or what we know. I've summed it this way by just simply saying the finished product of idolatry is nothing higher than what we know. And that's all idolatry is ever about is we are putting a value into something that does not deserve that value, into something that we see the knowledge that we have. Which leads to what he says now as a conclusion thought to four, in verses 14 through 17. How can we trust in something that we have power over? That's what he now basically submits to them. Notice verse 14. You cut down cedar trees. 
You have power over it. Or he goes on to say, maybe you let it grow strong. You choose a cypress tree, an oak, and you let it grow strong. Or he says, you plant a cedar tree at the end of verse 14. And the rain nourishes it. Here it is. There's the trees. You have a choice. You can cut it down. You can leave it there. You can plant a new one. And he says, how can it be that these things would be a God to us when we are the ones who have power over it? Essentially, how can a log save you when it can't save itself? You're going to put all of this effort into this object that cannot save itself from you, yet you're going to fashion it in such a way and somehow it will be your God. And I think the three things he basically said in verse 14 is if you can save it, plant it, or conserve it, then how is it a God? He says you can cut it down, all right, or you can leave it, all right, or you can plant it, all right. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is you do with it, if you have power over it, you can't depend upon it. Or to say it in a backward way, if something depends on you, you cannot depend upon it. And that's what makes God unique. Because God does not depend upon us. That's why we can depend upon Him. All of the creation depends on us. We have a control over it. We can do something to it or not do something to it. We can plant it, conserve it, cut it down, whatever we want to do. That's the whole imagery he gives here. And if it is something or someone that depends upon us, why would we believe that that is something that we can depend upon as our God, as our deliverance, as our help? And that's his argument. It just simply doesn't make sense. And unfortunately, this is exactly what we do. We take objects or things or people or cares of the world and we make it our treasure. We make it our delight. We make it our pursuit. We find value in our new cars and our new homes and our new toys. And yet we have to protect them and preserve them and keep them. If we have to do that, then why would we put so much value in it? Last year, I was able to buy a Camry and it sits outside. So I bought a nice car cover for it because the sun's going to beat on it every day. It doesn't make a lot of sense to put a high value in a car that you have to protect from the sun. What kind of deliverance and joy is going to come from something that I have to baby and be careful with? Why would you depend upon that? Why would you treasure it? That's what Isaiah is arguing. If you have power over it or it depends upon you, why would you put value in it? It is nothing. It is metal. It is wood. It is stone. And yet so often that is the very thing that we do. And how foolish it would be to find our treasure or meaning in what we drive or where we work or where we live, or how we live, or how much influence we have. These things are nonsense before God and are completely dependent upon us. Consider another idol that I think we we see happening in our society today, the idol of sexual immorality. People giving themselves over to pornography, sexual relations before marriage, promiscuity, adultery, homosexuality. Why is all this going on? What is everybody doing? They're all looking for true joy, pleasure, escape, comfort. They're trying to find the answer. And guess what happens? For the moment, 
There seems to be a joy, but then the moment ends and now you're back to the same position that you were before. You're no better off for all your effort, for all your work, for all your wasted time. And Isaiah says, in many cases, you're well worse off. You put all of this into this idol. And if you have to do something for that to be the joy, you've put your hope in the wrong place. You are depending upon something that is not worth your life pursuit. If you have to help it, you shouldn't treasure it. If you have to protect it and preserve it, it should not be your treasure. This is the imagery that Isaiah is just trying to get into the hearts of these people. Uh, I saw on social media not too long ago, one somebody that I know asked a very legitimate question. I thought it was a good question. The Christian asked just simply, what is your passion? But what broke my heart was the massive response of other Christians to that question. What is your passion? How would you answer that? One person wrote on there and said that their wife was their passion, and that's the reason they get out of bed every day. And of course, everybody goes on, you know, and goes goo goo on all of that. But there are enormous problems with that. What will you do if your spouse dies? What will you do if your spouse dies? And that's your whole reason for life. And that is your whole passion. And I get out of bed only because of that person. Well, then what will you do if something dramatically changes? What will we do if the thing that we have put all of our hope and our passion in suddenly no longer exists? I submit to you that's what causes a lot of devastation of the faith of many Christians is because they have made their passion in someone or something that's not God. And I just made a blurb and I didn't look at it again because I figured it would rain fire and brimstone. But I just put on there and I said, any passion that we have that's not a passion for God's idolatry walked off. (laughs) So there you go. Just giving you a heads up. God has given us relationships to enjoy and these things are all a blessing from God. But the reason for my existence is not other things or other people. It is God and God alone. And that's to be our passion. That's why we get up in the morning is to serve the Lord another day. That must be what it's all about. To get up for any other reason is the idolatry. Now we've established something or someone greater than God. And I submit to you that's often when people are crushed. I had an email. I shared it with some of you in the Foundations Bible study. An email from a lady And she wrote to me and she told me that she was angry at God. And she did not know how to live because her husband of all of these years had suddenly been taken away from her by disease and now passed away. And she said, nobody can give me a good answer for this. And I tried to explain as kindly as I could. The problem was that you have your treasure on the wrong thing. If that's going to be the end of it all, then you had your passion in the wrong place. As devastating as these things can be in life, consider what we see in Job and how Job is able to say, Hey, naked I came into this world, naked I go, blessed be the name of the Lord. What is Job teaching us is that God is the center of it all. 
and everything else is a temporary pleasure given to us by God. And we appreciate all that we have, everybody that we know from family and friends and Christians, and we enjoy those relationships to the fullest. Don't let that be your God. Don't let that be your treasure. Let that cause you to treasure God because he's given you so much. Because he's given you these rich relationships and given you wonderful families and given you such physical blessings. Let that cause you to treasure God more, not to put your treasure in the things. This is where Israel over and over again failed. That all the blessings that God would pour out to his people caused them to take their eye off of God and treasure what they had. And Isaiah is warning of it here. And I think this is the point that he gets at. In verses 18 to 20 is basically what happens is idolatry causes us not to see it. And I believe that's why there's always resistance when I say things like this. Because verses 18 and 20 says, guess what happens to those who have idolatry? They're blind in their eyes and their hearts. And so it's a challenge on our part to not be blinded by these things and recognize that the more we trust objects or people and make them our dependent and we live life for them and that's our treasure and that's our delight, he says, then it causes us not to think properly the way God wants us to think and instead causes us to make foolish and even sometimes sinful decisions That idolatry darkens our heart and destroys our power to understand what God would have us to do. Notice how he says there, uh, verse 18, they do not know, they do not understand. Because as God shut their eyes, they can't see in their hearts, so they can't understand. Verse 19, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, you know, half I burn in the fire and the other half I'm worshiping. Nobody can see that. Why not? Because idolatry captures us. And we try to make the blessings of God the ultimate thing. We take the good things that God has blessed us with. The possessions we have, the wealth that we have, the families that we have, the relationships that we have. And rather than praising God for those blessings, we make those the ultimate thing. We make that that that's all that matters. And the problem is, then what will you do when one is taken away? And then you lose something. But what will you do if your wealth is gone? What will you do if you lose your job? What will you do if your loved one passes away? What will you do in all of these various crises and circumstances? That's why our hope has to be placed in God. And unfortunately... We get so blinded by idolatry that he says we can't even ask the right questions or even begin to understand. And the challenge then is to try then not to put our treasure in those wrong things. I thought it was interesting the way he worded this in verses 18 through 20. Because I thought, have you ever talked to someone and you thought, Wow, that person's really crazy the way they look at life. I mean, that just doesn't even make sense. You know, you're trying to talk to somebody and you go, where in the world? Why do you look at life like that? That doesn't even, that's not anything that would make rational sense. I've encountered people like that where you're like, where in the world did that come from? I, I, this is the answer. Is over time, as we put our emphasis and our value and our meaning of life into things that are not God... 
It warps our thinking and darkens our hearts. I, I, I thought this was a great example. I know I've shared it one time a long time back, and I'd like to share it with you again, that I just had found this episode on TV so fascinating that they were having experiments, and of course isn't TV anymore about, let's take two, radical, two people with completely radically different views and make them have to spend time together, and let's watch the fireworks that happens, like what every TV show is all about now. This one was a little bit more fascinating because it was more really of a social experiment of what they did was they put two people together. They put an animal lover and a hunter together and said, let's see if they can teach each other. Let's see if they can learn from each other. And the hunter had a dog that he loved dearly. And so the animal lover thought he was she was going to really make an impression on the hunter and said, well, if you had to choose between saving your dog or saving me, which would you do? And her expectation was she, he was going to say the dog to try to make the point about your, you need to stop hunting animals and love animals. And the hunter said to her, oh, well, I would obviously choose you and not my dog to save. And she went, oh, no, no, that can't be right. I, I, you don't even know me. And you've had that dog for years. And I, I think my jaw was open. As I was like, I can't believe you said that. But that's what idolatry does. It warps our thinking. And now you're going to put animal life above human life. What? You can love your pets and love your animals all that you want to. Hug them and squeeze them and do all that. But wow, talk about the warping that happens that she would just could not comprehend how he could say that he would forfeit his dog of all of his years to save her life. That did not compute to her at all, and she did not understand. And I thought, that illustrates what Isaiah is saying right here. What happens is they do not know, we do not discern, and that's what idolatry does to our hearts. The longer we put our treasure or delight in something that is not God, then the greater challenge happens because our minds are darkened and we start thinking improperly. We, we, we see that all the time. Again, we've seen it in this world. Uh, we get so blinded by our idolatry that if our spouse doesn't make us happy, what do we do? Well, I'll find somebody else that's going to make us happy. That's why the divorce rate's through the roof, right? You know, well, I'm not happy with them anymore. Let's go find somebody else. And the problem is, so what will you do when that person doesn't make you happy anymore? Well, you go on to the next one. You go on to the next one. That's that's what the cycle is that that we see right now, and why divorce is ever increasing. And I just want us to consider that there is no person that can bear the weight of that kind of dependence. You know, if I live my life so that my children will make me happy, and not only I a bad parent, <laughs> no relationship can sustain that. that that's going to break down. And yet so often we do that in our relationships. You're, you're everything. Well, no relationship can, can sustain the you're everything. We've got to get the Disney thing out of here. You know, it's so much more important that we recognize that what verse 20 says. Look at that. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself. Or even say, that not there an, a lie in my right hand? He cannot even look at this idol and recognize, one, 
it doesn't really satisfy, it doesn't deliver, it doesn't save, and two, not even able to recognize that it's a lie. The thing that we think is bringing us the satisfaction and deliverance and joy is simply a lie. It's not. We come right back to where we started again. Now, notice notice how God concludes this lesson, verses 21 to 23. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you and you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Beautiful picture that Isaiah gives. And this is how we transform away from idolatry and become what God wants us to be. He says in verse 21, remember and return for two reasons. He says, number one, he says, I've redeemed you. I'm going to buy you back. He says, I'm going to send you into Babylonian captivity, but I'm going to redeem you. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to purchase you and buy you back out of that. And what a greater picture that becomes in the New Testament when Jesus becomes the purchase price, the ransom, the redemption for all humanity to be able to be saved by God that God says, I bought you. Now you belong to me. Therefore, I am the one who is to be the delight. I am the one who is to be the treasure. And closely right along with that, he tells Israel and says, not only is because I redeemed you, but it's because I made you. You're my servant. I created you. I formed you. And so, of course, you belong to me. What an amazing God who says, not only did I make you and you belong to me, but even though you went astray into your idolatry, I'll buy you back and we'll do this again. And you can belong to me. And that's all that God wants is that God wants us to depend upon him. God wants us to see him as our everything and that we will then sing for joy, as he says here in these verses, that we will see him as our God, that we can rely upon him because there is no one like him. He is the only God. There is no rock. Our wealth is not the rock. Our marriages are not the rock. Our children are not the rock. Nothing in this world is the rock. God is the rock, is what Isaiah said. Don't look outside of that because you will be disappointed. It will let you down. And so God forgives that idolatry and says, let me be the rock of your hope. Enjoy the things that God has given but recognize who the giver of the blessings is and worship Him. Find your delight in Him. Treasure Him. And that will help us to get the idols out of our lives when we see what He has to offer. When we are able to pull back and truly examine life and recognize there's no one else you can depend on. And there's nothing else you can depend on. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is going Nothing's going to get out of this place alive or make it for long. That's why God says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the only thing that's eternal around here. And so depend upon him. Let him be the rock. Let him be your source of strength. Let him be your salvation. Let him be your deliverer. That's Isaiah's message to the people. Turn away from the idols. Treasure the Lord with all your heart. 
You pull your songbooks out. That's the message for this evening. You pull your songbooks out. We'll sing an invitation song. And we invite you to see the absurdity of idolatry. To no longer put your trust in the things or the people of this world as if they can be depended upon. God alone. God alone is our strength. God alone is our help. And He will carry us through any difficulty or any good things that we have. He is always there for us. He is the rock and there is no other. Will you give your life to Him this evening? Will you turn away from your sins? Confess Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins and be immersed in water to have your sins washed away and enter a relationship with Him? Will you come and respond right now while we stand and while we sing?